0: Everybody and welcome to Views on View. I'm Ari Clark, and apparently Ben thinks I'm an awesome UI/UX engineer at Liquid. And today on our panel we have Chris Fritz of the View Core team, uh, Docs Extraordinaire. Hello. Uh, and Elizabeth Fine, View developer and CSS enthusiast. Hello. And of course Ben Hong, senior front-end engineer who also loves CSS. Hello. And today our guest is Luca Metzalera. Luca, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Hi everyone, my name is Luca. I'm Italian, I live in London the past six years. I'm a vice president of architecture in a company called The Zone. The Zone is a a live streaming platform for sport. We have currently our platform available in several countries with millions of users that are watching our content uh, every day. I'm a Google developer expert on web technologies and I'm uh, the London JavaScript community manager.
0: That's a lot.
1: (laughs) It is, it is indeed. One of the
2: things that I find that we talk a lot about at the different conferences and the different things that I'm working on is open source software. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas around open source software, but we don't often think about the people who are building it and trying to maintain it. I had a friend, John, who came to me. He's been a guest on JavaScript Jabber a couple of times. He came and he actually said, hey, Chuck, I wish there was a show about sustaining open source. That really hit me where I live. And I have a few other friends who are working on projects related to this. So we all got together and we put together a show called Sustain Our Software. You can find it at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com It's a place where several people who are passionate about open source come together and have conversations about how it can be sustained and how it can be maintained and what we can do to help these maintainers continue to deliver us value that we build our software on. Most of the software we're building is based on open source. And so it's important to us to have that maintained and have it taken care of. Come check it out. It's been really interesting to listen to the conversations that they're having from people who are working in it all the time and just hear what they have to say about it. Once again, that's at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com.
0: So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you ended up um, in web development, your experience with uh, various JavaScript frameworks, and how you ended up working with Vue?
1: Okay, so I started my career roughly 16 years ago. At the beginning, uh, I didn't do any particular study. Uh, I'm a self-taught and uh Basically, I was working in a factory. A friend of mine asked, uh, told me about HTML, uh, HTML4 at the time. And he basically gave me uh, a book and I started to read it. And it was probably the first book that I read end-to-end from okay. the first page to the last page. And I was super intrigued about coding. And then suddenly I discovered uh, ActionScript, And I, I became basically a, a Flash developer for, for a while. I'm, I'm big, passionate about communities and therefore the community brought me uh, to travel a lot, to uh, learn a lot, and talk with different people, and uh, I became more and more passionate about uh, uh, coding. So far, I did like uh, uh, I work with a lot of languages uh, like uh, ActionScript, Hacks, uh, Lua, Node.js, JavaScript. Uh, I wrote also a bit of Rust and Python, and it was always interesting because every time there was a new challenge. I had the opportunity to uh, not work uh, only on web, but a lot of, uh, um, let's say, embedded systems like uh, a set of boxes, um, a motorbike uh, once, mm-hmm. and uh, let me think, several touchscreens. And I traveled the world basically doing my job. And it was absolutely awesome so far, the experience. And the last uh, four or five years, uh, I moved to the architecture role, mm-hmm. where at the beginning I was working as front-end architect half coding, half, uh, uh, let's say, designing uh, applications. And slowly but steady, I was promoted a couple of times. Now I'm uh, vice president of architecture, so I'm overseeing front-end, back-end on the cloud, Um, working a lot with Lambdas, working a lot with uh, uh, AWS cloud provider, and it's absolutely an amazing journey because uh, obviously at the beginning as front-end developer, you know more or less how the back-end works, but now it's becoming, let's say, more predominant my, my time spent on, on the front-end as, well, on, on the, on the, on the, as well, on the back-end as well, on the front-end. And the nice thing is that um, the zone uh, has a lot of challenges for front-end developers because we are working not only on web applications, but also on smart TVs, set top boxes, console, and so on. So our application is basically everywhere. And and that is uh, one of the nicest challenges that I had in my, my career so far.
0: That's a lot. I suddenly feel very inexperienced. <laughs> <laughs> um. Speaking of me being inexperienced and you being very experienced, I understand that you are essentially the leader on thoughts on micro front ends. Do so you want to talk a little bit about what is a micro front end?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, for that. <laughs> leader, I think is uh, is a bit too much. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm I, I love sharing my experiences with the community, and that's uh, why I'm 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 here mainly for sharing thought and also uh, learning from others because I think is the the key things. So, what is a microphone 10? Basically, a few years ago, uh, when I was uh, redesigning the zone, well, how we call it 2.0 on all those different platforms, I had like, my CTO that came to me and said, Look, listen, we were like 50 people, roughly, inside the organization. Now we are over 3,000. So, as you can imagine, it was a massive growing for years. And uh, he told me, listen, look, you should think when you design the new application and the new architecture on something that is really scalable, where we have distributed teams that are contributing on our code base. And, you know, I was the second person who was hired for the, on the tech department. So I was <laughs> very laughable at that time because, uh, as you can imagine, thinking on designing something that it has to be that big, I was very complicated at the beginning. But obviously, I listened to him, I, uh, I was encouraged by him, that definitely is a very experienced person. So I thought, okay, so what can I do in order to enable people to work on the same project or with people that could be in different time zones and different locations and have to work on the same project? And it's very difficult if you think about that because I had the experience in the past that also when you have like 14 developers working on the same code base, very often that we have like, uh, backstops uh, because of people weren't agreeing on a specific direction, they want to change something, so they want to refactor stuff. Now we're talking about hundreds of developers working on the same project. And suddenly you, know, you had to come up with something that could make the deal, basically. I started to figure out, uh, based on my experience, what other architectures, also outside the front-end world, were allowing us uh, to achieve that. And obviously, that the first thought was uh, let's think about uh, microservices.
0: Could you quickly tell us what microservices are? Because I know until recently, like I'd heard the term, but didn't actually know what it was. So I imagine there's a few listeners who feel the same way. So could you explain microservices?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So a, a microservice is uh, a self-contained, and autonomous, and independent a service that could be deployed uh, inside a, a system and is uh, responding to an API that you can consume and is doing just one job and uh, one job only it's not taking care about the whole system and when you have a backend system that has multiple microservices you can have uh, you can move away from your old monolith that contains all your APIs and therefore if you need to scale you need to scale all your APIs but suddenly you discover that at the end, not only the, the APIs need, needs to be uh, scaled. And that's one of the key advantages of uh, uh, the independency of micros, microservices. So if you think about what microservices is and how it could be applicable to the front-end, we suddenly discover that on a micro, micro front-end, you can apply similar concept. You can have an independent release of, of a service, in this case a micro front-end, you can have, uh, let's say, a, a technology-agnostic piece of software. Therefore, picking your favorite framework could be Vue, could be React, it could be Angular, wherever, wherever uh, the, the company is heading to. Then you can deliver it autonomously. It can be, uh, let's say, sliced and uh, divided based on a business domain. And when I say business domain, think about, for instance, Netflix. In Netflix, for instance, we have a key business domain, a core business domain, I was calling domain-driven design, that is playback and the the, the catalog. This is like the core domain and why Netflix exists. Obviously, Netflix for existing and for subscribing needs a lot of other APIs, a lot of other views. That is, for instance, the subscription, the payment view, and the help, and the customer support, and the chat, and so on. But those are not core domains. They're just part of the domain. And if you start to think... How you can, uh, how nice could uh, you can slice an application, create independent teams that are taking local decision inside their domain, picking the right database for the right job and the right programming language for the right job instead of uh, sharing and having a trade off across the entire system. Then you can start to think, oh, maybe I can do the same on the front end, and that's where basically micro frontends are, are coming from. From me. Obviously, there are a lot of people that are trying to start from the uh, technology point of view, saying, okay, micro-frontend is an iFrame that contains something, or I don't know, is uh, what they call edge-side includes that you can run in, a, is a, uh, let's say, a, a markup language that you are, are, have available on the CDN level, and you can substitute element-like uh, components if you think about in React or Vue or whatever it is. So you have a different way that you can express micro-frontends. Micro but in reality... We need to think about uh, uh, the, the principles behind them in order to uh, uh, embrace them properly. Yeah. Okay,
0: so that seemed like a very thorough explanation of what a micro front end is. So it sounds like, generally speaking, micro front ends pair best with microservices back end. Would you say that's accurate?
1: It is, to a certain extent. Obviously, you can have one or the other, or you can have both. It's completely up to you. There is one powerful thing that we discovered during our journey because we were at the beginning what we had was a monolith on the back end and a monolith or a single page application on the front end. And uh, what happened at that stage is that obviously every time that we change something, we need to release a lot amount of code, maybe also for a tiny change. And that could potentially break another part of the system that we didn't take in consideration. And it was very frustrating, obviously. So what we, we, we thought is, okay, we analyzed our platform. We said, okay, so we have like certain APIs that need to scale. And that is the same applicable to the front end because those APIs need to scale, but also need to change frequently. So if we have a way to de risk this deployment, we can have like a, a better solution in order to, let's say, deploy our platform. And that's where we started to move to migrate from a monolith to microservices. And when you combine microservices with micro ends, if you think about that, one thing that I really enjoy in a small organization or startup is the fact that uh, there is a team that is doing front-end and back-end, and they're taking all the decisions locally. They don't have to ask to the CTO or they ask to someone. They just take a decision they move very fast. And it's usually where a large organization are losing the the ground compared to startups because they, they don't have that agility they are not moving that fast. So, if you imagine that you can take a large organization, slicing by tiny domains, like, I don't know, the subscription, the payment team, and uh, some, something else, and you slice a domain end-to-end, where a team, cross-functional team, can do front-end and back-end, taking local decisions and deploy independently from the rest of, of the company, it's absolutely amazing what you can achieve. Obviously. That is, let's say, in a grand scheme of of things, nice to say, but obviously there are other complications, like there are some APIs that need to to work together, there are some pieces of of, uh, UI that have to work together, uh, and so on. So then you introduce, let's say, a level of complexity that is uh, leading us to API contracts. So how much we want to spend on identifying those API contracts and work towards them. And that helps a lot in order to front-end and back-end to create let's say, a, a way that two teams can work in parallel against a specific contract. And then at the end of the work, let's say every iteration, every two-week sprint, or if you work with Kanban uh, at the end of uh, each single end-to-end flow for, for, for a Kanban, throughput at, uh, in Kanban, you have like some checkpoints that you see for your team A is working on something that makes sense for team B and vice versa. And, and that's, for me, something incredible because we start to have the agility that we had on, on a smaller organization Back to a large organization of uh, three hundred something developers. So I think one of the questions that probably
3: occurs to most developers who work on like you know sort of monolithic you know SPA frameworks, as you mentioned, is that with micro front ends, doesn't this run the risk then of having, say, because um, I know some companies actually have multiple frameworks running on the same page, right? The headers written in React, the shopping carts written in Angular, and then the rest Absolutely. of you. What are some of your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, okay, let's start with with one thing. I believe that. Uh, because it's possible, it doesn't mean that you need to embrace it. Let's start from... <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> there are a lot of things that are possible, but are not best practices. <laughs> enough. Um, there is another thing, and I think is uh, very important, that comes back to the principle where I started my journey. So one of the principles of microservices and microfrontends is the fact that you need to identify your business model. So the part, how... Small is a micro front end. From my point of view, I think uh, having multiple frameworks in, in, uh, and having multiple micro front ends in the same view is becoming very challenging to maintain, in particularly with large teams. The path that we took in the zone is uh, slicing by domain, creating basically all single pages end-to-end managed by one framework and uh, one team. That is the case of uh, the landing page for us. So we have a team that creates a builder uh, to create basically landing pages that are just a single page or single page application, but very tiny, very narrowed, if you want, that are following business domain more than technical constraints. And what I mean for that is I analyzed at the beginning, how our user were interacting in our platform. So looking that uh, we had like hundred percent of users were going to the landing page. And then from there to the sign in or sign up journey, there was, I don't know, 50% of drop just making up some numbers. And then from, Completing the sign up journey to the out- authenticated page we have like fifteen percent or twenty percent so you see immediately that you can identify some areas where it doesn't make any sense having a single page application for loading a landing page when honestly just fifty percent of your traffic is benefit from the loading all that chunk of code so slicing up by uh, li- looking at numbers looking at data allowed us to create uh, to, uh, let's say different uh, A journey for our users that are pretty smooth and loading only the code that is needed for that specific journey. There is another advantage for us because, as I said at the beginning, we are working with uh, low-end devices like set of boxes, for instance, or old console, like PlayStation 3. And those devices, they are not very powerful. And therefore, memory-wise, every byte counts. So in that case, loading only the code that is needed allowed us to, pro- to enhance the experience of our interface because we can add more, uh, let's say, animations or adding more functionalities that before we weren't able because the footprint of our uh, our um, application was larger than before. And vast majority of that wasn't used.
4: Luca, do you think that having micro front ends allows you to create autonomous teams that can be can develop more expertise in certain areas in a way that's beneficial to the overall development community at your company? Or do you find that having people so specialized can affect your operational readiness? For example, if something goes wrong within another micro front end, because you have people so specialized, is it difficult to you know find resources? Say if people are out or not available to fix a bug or an on-call you know, incident?
1: Okay, that's a good question. So as I said, we have a, a live platform. So all our teams are owning what they are the, uh, writing more or less like Netflix model. So what it means for us is that they're also on call. So we have a rota where uh, people are on call for each single team. We have usually two engineers that they are uh, responsible for their vertical. I think the main challenge we found working this way is that uh, it's knowledge sharing. So in order to do that, we started to have um, a couple of events that are happening uh, um, bi-weekly or every month. This depends from from the meeting. Sometimes it's a tech guild between uh, only a specific area of the business that could be only backend or only frontend. Sometimes it's what we call the town hall, where in each single dev center, we have currently the four dev center, uh, we monthly have like uh, one hour and a half, two hours, where any engineer from any dev center can come and share what they have achieved, what was the problem, and so on. So we found, let's say, uh, interesting, obviously, locally is easy. In a same center, there are people that are catching up regularly. But when you have, uh, let's say, people distributed in Europe like we have, having those moments is helping a lot. And then as architects and as well as uh, engineers, we are traveling a lot in different dev centers for workshops and face-to-face meeting because the communication has to flow. Despite you are providing something that to move faster, it doesn't mean that you, it's always right. So you need to share the information because otherwise a lot of people feel uh, isolated and it's not what we want to achieve. Here we want to uh, achieve agility and uh, uh, speed of delivery but we don't want to crash completely a community of developers inside the organization because it's not what we are aiming for. That makes a lot of sense.
0: This is purely out of curiosity. Uh, <laughs> do developers ever or sometimes change teams within uh, zone or... Do people tend to just stick with their one team forever and ever?
1: I think what we put in place is uh, uh, interesting, at least if I, were, if I was a developer uh, at the, this time, I would love it. So we have like um, uh, some roles that are temporary. So we have a developer experience team where we have a part of the team that is fixed. So they're working on this and other part, like 40% that is in Rota. So they, there are people from other teams that are joining, maybe for, for developing a specific tool for the developer experience, and then they go back to their team. We have also, um, let's say, developers that after a while, they would like to see another challenge, and we encourage them to change the team. So we are more than happy. Obviously, we cannot do every month because otherwise the, <laughs> the velocity could suffer. But in reality, we have several developers uh, that have moved from one team to another one because maybe they wanted to see a completely different challenge. And that's for me uh, really cool because obviously I work in other organizations and it wasn't always possible because of uh, uh, the expertise that the person is bringing with him. But in reality, for the zone, I think because we are trying to spend a lot of time knowledge, doing knowledge sharing, it becomes easier. It's not always say, possible, but it's often possible. We saw there are some plus on doing that and some drawbacks. The plus is obviously people stick around more uh, for for longer. London is a very competitive market for developers. It's estimated that you have like um, developers sticking a company for a year and a half, maximum two years. We have developers that are over three years that are in the company, and that is uh, great because it means that the uh, the, the culture and the environment is is working. There are other drawbacks because obviously this is working in particular where we're in more consolidated places. In uh, other dev centers, we have more challenges because it's maybe, for instance, um, in one dev center in particular, we ramp up from nothing to 150 uh, tech people in uh, six months. So as you can imagine, it's like huge. And there we we try to apply the same thing, but it's not stable enough because uh, every week we have 10 new joiners. And it's spreading this thing is just complicated. It's not trivial at all. So I hope that uh, we stabilize, destabilize this uh, uh, this dev center very soon, maybe next year, where we're, where the hiring would be, let's say, less aggressive. But uh, overall, I think uh, so far I'm pretty. It's, I think it's pretty enjoyable the the, the place where we create.
4: So do you split up your other resources in a similar way? By other resources, I mean people other than developers like QA analysts, for example, or project managers.
1: Yeah. So uh, basically, if you think about uh, one of the key uh, laws that are ruling uh, or, or, uh, uh, let's say, driving uh, the consideration of architecture, usually you think about the Conway's law. The Conway's Law states the fact that uh, usually you design an architecture based on how the organization is organized. And that for me was uh, uh, an issue because uh, obviously if you want to uh, be cutting edge, you need to push forward. So usually what we have is currently creating an end-to-end, let's say, team that is composed not only by front-end and back-end developers where possible. Sometimes we have teams that are just front-end or just back-end because it depends from uh, domain that they're working on. But then we have always associated a technical project manager uh, to one team or two teams, max, one product owner. And basically, if you think about that, you have a tiny organization that is fully uh, autonomous on that specific thing. So we try to implement what they call uh, the reverse uh, maneuver for, uh, for the Conway law. Instead of uh, relying on the how was the organization, we change our organization in order to follow the architecture. And that was probably the smartest thing that we have done so far, because I remember one day they came to me saying, listen, we are opening this new dev center. We need to provide them work. So how do you envision this? And we had several discussions with uh, my peers. And suddenly I had a spark in, my, in my, my brain saying, okay, maybe we are doing something wrong here because if we spread our domain, uh, uh, having a bit of uh, acquisition retention in London, a bit in Amsterdam and a bit somewhere else, that could uh, create friction between teams. Instead, if we try to identify what are our key domains and we assign each one domain per center, then we become very frictionless because each team has uh, his own peer basically next to them. And the worst case scenario is like two minutes by walk to the next desk instead of waiting for a call or uh, coming to London or stuff like that. And that, I think, was um, uh, pretty nice. Then the next challenge was how we can uh, reduce uh, the communication problems or increase, sorry, the communication uh, between Dev centers. And that's why we started to have uh, different uh, uh, meetings uh, across uh, uh, the organization.
0: What are some other tools, if any, that you employed to create a culture that was conducive to this um, sort of new
1: type of organizational structure? When you say tool, um,
0: uh, like like the meetings, like very broadly, tools. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> mechanisms, whatever.
1: I think you know what, uh, in my opinion, is helping us a lot is definitely working uh, uh, small iterations. Is um, creating uh, bridges between uh, different teams. So, for instance, another tool that worked pretty well for us is, for instance, we have some teams that are centralized. And what I mean centralized is like uh, architecture or uh, the cloud engineers, certain cloud engineers that are helping across the business and across the platform because each single team is responsible for their cloud strategy. But they have to interact with architecture, obviously, and they have to interact with the the, the SREs and and the cloud engineers. Usually what we do as a centralized team is creating like the vision and create some guardrails where the team can operate. And one thing that we found really helpful to challenge our, our assumptions is using RFCs, uh, so requests for comments on GitHub. And that is uh, a, a nice way to, to manage that because uh, obviously the team can challenge your architecture or challenge your decision and propose something new. And there are other people that are, can that can chip in, chip in asynchronously without creating a meeting and having a moment for doing that, and that is uh, something that it uh, it helped in my opinion. Currently, we are about to roll out the RFC process also for architecture, and we are adding also a new functionality. There's a new functionality, a new process that is the architecture clinic, where people can uh, um, let's say uh, join a meeting, a virtual meeting, where they can ask questions to a, to an architect. So what we are trying to do, obviously, we have a limited amount of resources. We cannot have uh, architects everywhere in the world. So therefore, uh, we are trying to do our best for mitigating uh, the the fact that we are in uh, London or uh, um, another location. The other thing that we are doing is trying to always have a say and create a process where developers at different stage can chip in and provide us feedback. Because the reality is when you create those teams that are specialized uh, for a specific business domain, they can help us and they can help you as architects to design a better solution. And that, for me, is a big advantage because usually I work in an organization where um, there was this ivory tower of architects that were deciding stuff. Now it's more democratizing architecture where people can have a say and can can chip in and, and change it potentially understanding the context. Because often what I've seen is developers are are challenging you, but uh, maybe sometimes they're missing the point, missing the context why a decision was made. And sometimes it was the right decision at the right moment, but obviously in six month time, the business and the technical world is changing and we need to, instead of fighting, embracing it. When we mean embracing, it means also revising certain decisions that maybe six months ago was pretty valid, but six months after are completely not.
0: I can see why you uh, reduced your churn rate. It really sounds like you make it very clear that you value the contributions of every developer. And I know that for me, transparency is huge in terms of my uh, happiness in the workplace. <laughs> so, well, yeah, that sounds like you guys are definitely taking uh, the right approach here.
1: Yeah, we're we're trying to do our best. Uh, again, there are challenges because it's not always possible and easy, in particular for uh, new dev centers. but. I think everyone has the mindset inside the organization to make their best and, and trying to reduce, reduce the, the, the friction. And obviously, it's not always working, but uh, it's often working. And we saw that applied pretty well in London. We saw that it's happening pretty well in Poland, where we have another dev center. And now we need to do the same effort and, and the same thing also for the other dev centers.
3: Very cool. Sort of to sort of bring back the micro front end to the sort of the framework discussion. So obviously, shared component libraries are a really big discussion, right? As far as like code reuse and trying to be dry and you know don't repeat yourself. So you know what are you know obviously I think in a micro front end architecture, it sounds like code reuse is a more you're just much more susceptible to this. So
1: what are some of your thoughts on uh, on this? Code reuse is definitely a hot topic uh, on micro front ends. I can tell you what we are doing and uh, my experience as a developer. And then uh, let's see well, if uh, it's, uh, let's say, the same thing that you are thinking about. My experience personally is uh, I work a lot in, uh, let's say, an imperative uh, code base. I work in a functional code base. I saw the power of inheritance. I saw the drawbacks of inheritance. I saw the power of composition and the drawbacks of composition. And that's, that's brilliant, understanding all those techniques. The code reusability though, is important, in my opinion, but in my opinion, it's not essential. I mean, recently there was a nice uh, interview to the CTO of uh, ThoughtWorks. She was asked uh, by uh, Neil Ford, that is uh, a archi- very famous architect, what was uh, uh, a myth that he, she discovered in her career. And the first thing that she said, the myth of reusability. Because in reality is, and this is happening also in my organization, sometimes we create like shared components that are used twice. It's more difficult to add a new functionality in one of the shared components more than writing it from scratch. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have shared components. We have some shared components in our case, like for instance, the video player that is super complex. And we have like a team of uh, roughly 10 people that are working only on video player every single day. And that is a component that is uh, currently used by one micro front but in the future could be used by, by several others. And that is one example. When there is complexity to handle, where there is a lot of business logic and there is complexity, in in my opinion, that does make a lot of sense. But when I don't want to, for instance, for for certain components like the header and the footer, we have like four different implementations. And that wasn't, uh, let's say, the main scope at the beginning, but we saw that accelerate dramatically the delivery of that. And I know that the following question is, okay, how do you create design consistency on what, uh, what you're doing? Because obviously, if you reimplement four or five times a component, how can you do that? So that is a debate that we started to do in the company. And currently, I think it's not p- pixel perfect, but we are working currently on a new plan on introducing a design system that will allow us to be uh, pixel perfect and have a lot of uh, uh, reusability on certain primitive components. And when I say primitive, it's, it's very intentional because obviously, if you think about design system, you can have like different level of design system. You can arrive to have a library with some business logic and something very complex. In my opinion, for microphone Frontends, if you want to leverage the power of that, you need to stop slightly behind that. So you need to arrive to have primitive components that will allow you to uh, be implemented everywhere. And if you have, like, let's say, uh, a unique framework that you're using, bear in mind that you need to try to have multiple libraries of the same framework for different versions. Because obviously you can have in Microphone ends that one part of the application is written in Vue and uh, um, in the newer version and one in the older version. So if those are not retrocompatible, you need to create like two versions. And talking with other, uh, let's say design teams, they were saying that, for instance, migrating one design system from Angular to React or from Vue to uh, Angular, it took like a week of work. That is not, a lot if you think about that. And maintaining is not a problem. There are tons of tools out there that will allow us uh, to speed up this process. For instance, one thing that we are looking at that was released by Amazon is the style dictionary that is pretty nice and allows you basically to define your design token in uh, JSON and you describe how you want your font, your font size uh, and different other things then they combine everything and they can output based on the configuration that you provide. It could be either ES6 code, uh, if you're using uh, uh, CSS in JS. It could be, I don't know, CSS. It could be SAS. It could be even for mobile, uh, Swift classes or Objective 6 classes or uh, Java code. So it's really flexible and it's thought across multiple platforms. That is a key thing. So I think uh, uh, we are going to introduce the, the the Style Dictionary uh, project, uh, uh, I hope, very soon, based on a few deadlines that we have, uh, our deadlines that we have currently in the zone. But uh, I would like to roll out this uh, very soon to have that for next year. And the, the idea behind that is uh, empowering the design team to do their changes, provide to the developers something that is primitive but good enough to be implemented everywhere. Technology-wise, we are looking to uh, web components for doing that. The main challenge that we have currently, we are running, we are doing a spike for doing that on TVs, in particular on old devices, because at the end of the day, TVs are working with basically uh, windowless browsers, but very old version, like it's working like with Opera old version for certain devices. And uh, we need to understand um, if the polyfills will be able to supply the retro compatibility we need for web components. Otherwise we need to look uh, more creating like a different version of different libraries that it won't take too much, considering our are primitive elements so that it won't be, let's say, too complex logic-wise, but it's still a different approach from the initial one that we thought about.
3: So it sounds like your stance as far as like um, the repeating yourself, I think there's a tweet that you mentioned in your article where it says, duplication is far cheaper than the wrong abstraction.
1: Okay, so it wasn't my sentence, but uh, I really liked that, uh, that sentence. It was coming from an engineer who was explaining that having a wrong abstraction could lead to more problems, more troubles than, than benefits. In my experience, I had something similar uh, where we, we found a nice anti-pattern, well-documented, that is called a diamond anti-pattern. Basically, we were extending a core library from uh, we adding multiple libraries that were inheriting from, from this, and they were just extending functionality. And then suddenly, because we had like seven, eight teams working or using those libraries, because they weren't able to have something done in the core library, Basically, they start to extend that. And suddenly, when we update the core library, nothing was working because the core library made some breaking changes, and we need to test all the games that we're working on. It was a nightmare. And, and oh those kind God. of, <laughs> unfortunately, are happening more often than, than not. And still, we are thinking, oh, yeah, we need to be, uh, we need to abstract, we need to, but in reality, abstraction. Sometimes it's, it's just, a, let's say, a naive way to, to think about the real value that we are creating. Because at the end, I truly think we are not writing, writing code for the sake of writing code. We are hired for writing code to create value for the business. And we need to create this value. And sometimes it's a trade-off. It's not always we need to respect everything. I, I know pretty well the the, the dry concept and the, all the other concept abstraction behind that. But it doesn't mean that you need to follow blindly those rules. You need to apply those rules where are needed. And sometimes knowing that you are uh, breaking those rules, apply something different.
0: I'll be honest. Uh, when I was going through some of your Medium articles yesterday, my first inclination was to be like, no, why? Why Why would you do that? Why Why would you repeat <laughs> yourself? And why would you be like encouraging that? But then as I continued to read, and it, it was specifically the you know, the expensive, bad abstraction. I was like, oh, yeah, no, okay, that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, all right, all right, you won me over.
1: (laughs) You know, having a white beard sometimes helps.
0: (laughs) (laughs) i watched one of your talks where you you prefaced it with keep an open mind. And I, yes, I I won't lie. You really have to do that to sort of digest it in a valuable way (laughs) as opposed to just, no. That goes against everything I've ever been told will not listen. Because, yes, it is a very different paradigm than I think most of us are used to working in where, yeah, you share everything. Reusability, reusability, component libraries. But you made some extremely valid arguments for why that's not always the best thing to do.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, uh, sometimes you find that duplicating some, some code is less horrible than you think because then you, can, you have an agility that you don't have. Obviously, when you need to bring a change to, I don't know, four or five parts of, of the code and they are similar, it's a pain. But just to give you an example, when we, when we decide to have duplication for the header and footer instead of co- creating a component, the reason behind that were several reasons. The first one was how often do we change the header and the footer? And I, I went back on and checked. We change twice in three years. So if we change another time, yeah, probably it's a pain, but how long is it taking for a developer to changing, I don't know, adding a new item inside the, the footer and the, the header? Probably 30 seconds. Multiply by four, yeah, probably it's still acceptable. The other thing was... Each single footer and header have different behavior in different parts of the application. So then we need the team that has to know how to map this. And then when we develop, it's not a component that has to be, let's say, iterated too often. When you develop once, it's there for six months, eight months, a year, wherever it is. So does it make sense that we create a team that owns that and in six-month time we create let's say, some. Uh, uh, they have to rethink completely on the code that they have written six months before for adding what? Just an item. Mm. Didn't make sense at that time. Currently, we are looking to, let's say, um, reviewing those those decisions. But I think so far, those decisions were, uh, despite uh, against some rules, quite good for us because at the end, we discovered that the product team had some ideas on how to improve certain areas of deprecation. And that was impacting exactly this. And without any external dependency, the team was able to deliver in a matter of uh, days instead of uh, weeks. Because otherwise, you have an external dependency for a distributed team that has to be aware of this. It doesn't. The, it has to prioritize inside this backlog, and it will take longer the communication part than doing a, a change inside a duplication uh, piece of code.
3: Yeah. So I mean, just to echo uh, Ari's point, I think when I was first, you know, sort of reading the article and Obviously, a lot of microfunding goes against what we're traditionally used to. And so I think what you do a great job with is reminding us that, you know, as developers, it's not just about following rules blindly, but really keeping things into context. And for those, we're going to include his medium late article in the links. But um, just the way you sort of take tweets that where people took things out of context and misinterpreted them, and then like putting them into context and learning how to accept trade offs as developers, I think that's really critical for us to be thinking intelligently rather than. Just be like, well, they always said don't repeat your code, so I'm just going to do that. Even though, uh, to your point, right, four developers need to make four changes, you know, twice in three years. Like that's not very expensive from a cost perspective. So, yeah,
1: yeah, fully. I mean, too often, unfortunately, uh, I saw that uh, abstraction led to more troubles than benefits. I'm not saying that that our approach is perfect, far to be, uh, but I'm saying it's a different approach. Uh, we are experimenting at scale, and we saw. That there are some some good things uh, coming out from it, and uh, I, I like to share. I like to be challenged. If there are people that are saying no, this is completely wrong for a certain reason, happy to to have a discussion with uh, with them. Recently, for instance, a few months ago, there was a huge flame on Twitter. considering you mentioned that on uh, Microsoft Dance. Isn't there uh, a flame on Twitter like every other day? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was specific to Microsoft Dance, <laughs> where quite few people
0: time. This is from Dan Abramov. Uh, he yeah. said, I don't understand micro-frontends.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, it was absolutely uh, valuable. I mean, as you said, you need to understand the context. And personally, when I read that, there was few people that mentioned me on that tweet and they said, oh, wow, uh, now I feel that I need to do something. But obviously, English is not my native language. Therefore, trying to explain something that complex in 140 characters or 200 characters, whatever they are. Right now, I thought no, that is not going to work with me. So I thought to write an article uh, that uh, is available on Medium as well, and that was uh, a huge success. I had a lot of people at the conferences after after that article. Let's say in community, in community that were that were saying that were quite impressed about the um, uh, let's say the things that I shared, and uh, that I think I didn't offend anyone. Hope <laughs> at least I think it was just sharing my thought, technical thought, and. Uh, trying to do my best to uh, clear some hair because I sometimes, uh, you know, on, on the community, in particular on, on Twitter, it could become quite rough because people have strong opinions. But in reality, I think uh, also behind strong opinions, you can find something truth and you need to embrace that. And if you remove, let's say, the bad part and you think what is, is trying, this person is trying to communicate, maybe you can find uh, some uh, inspiration on how to explain better a concept that in your mind was crystal and clear but in other people's mind, it wasn't. And that for me is a, a key takeaway uh, when I uh, read that flame on my content. I
0: have to say, I found the style of that article uh, really cool, but very interesting because I don't know if this was intentional or not, but you had this tendency to sort of rip off the band-aid with concepts and then temper it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I would read a sentence, I'm like, what? No, How? how dare he? And then you're like, but I don't actually believe that, just saying. <laughs> but I, thought, I thought that was good because like immediately you got like my, my brain like, what? Just turning and like, like oh, how could, like, it, so it ignited passion, which I don't know, for me, I remember concepts better if there's some passion involved in the process of learning it. So I really appreciated that, whether it was <laughs> intentional or not.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for that. No, I'm I'm a really passionate person, probably because, because I'm uh, Italian, or for basically because I love what I'm doing, and I don't think it's <laughs> a but in reality, I think uh, if if you don't have passion uh, for this job, that is asking a lot because you need to keep up to date, reading books, and uh, going to, to communities, learn from others, trying to uh, reinvent yourself. I cannot say every year, but Often, let's say that way, uh, you you don't really, uh, you cannot really work in this industry. I mean, uh, this industry is fantastic because you cannot get bored if you really like what you're doing.
0: I agree with that. I 100% agree with that. All right. And uh, where can people find you, Luca?
1: Currently, I'm on all the socials, LinkedIn and Twitter, GitHub, uh, Medium. Uh, You think about the social, probably I'm there, apart from Instagram. But the rest is fine. So you can find me on uh, GitHub with my first name last name. But everywhere, honestly, on the social with my first na- first name and last name, I have uh, on Medium uh, my uh, where I'm collecting all the articles around uh, microphone tents and other topics that I discuss. So, so like AWS Lambda, the serverless paradigm. I'm pretty, uh, let's say, pretty like that paradigm. And uh, yeah, those are where mainly where you can find
2: me.
0: All right.
1: Back when functional programming was making its
2: resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype. And I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language. It's built on the Erlang virtual machine and it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily, and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com.
0: Now, let's move on to picks. Uh, ben, would you like to start us off?
3: Sure. So, I think Chris gave this pick actually a couple of weeks ago. I've been reading Exhalations. My name is by Ted Chang. And so, that has been just a fantastic journey of just, again, just explorations into like futuristic worlds and like the, 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 the writing of it is just phenomenal. So, again, I can second Chris's pick from a couple of weeks ago. Um, so, it's Exhalations. And that's a book of short stories by Ted Chang, right? Yes, that is correct. My second pick for this week is the perplexus epic for those who've never. So, you know, those like little mazes with like the metal ball that you like used to play with as a kid, like yeah, think okay. that as a gigantic ball. But there's like it's like a 3D maze. You have to like turn and like control the physics and there's like ramps where it switches and drops. And so my buddies at Politico have one at the office and it's like a competition to see who can get the farthest so um, that's like a big thing right now. Great, like office time waster <laughs> as people compete over it. So I'll be sure to drop that in the links. But that is those are my picks for this week.
0: I had one of those. I don't know if mine was just cheap, but like literally, you could not get past like the first two inches because <laughs> <laughs> there was like a tolerancing issue. But yeah, oh, so no. I ended up giving it to my nephews who really didn't care. They just like that it rattled.
3: I heard that some have lower build quality. So I'll drop the Perplexus Epic, which is the hardest one. So I know there'll be developers out there who are like, I can challenge accepted.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I should have sprung for a slightly more high quality one. (laughs) All right. Elizabeth, would you like to go? Yeah. Okay. I have one as usual,
4: and that is this app I found for managing my recipes because I love cooking. And I've never been able to find a good way to like keep all my recipes in one place with pictures that are right there. And especially one where I can, it's like a requirement that I can be able to import from a URL. And so I found this app called Cookbook. So pretty self-explanatory name there. And it's really nice. It's been really easy to use. You can like tag recipes with different things. You can edit the steps. You can connect a video. So I've been using that recently and I've been really liking it. And um, that is my pick for today. I'll
0: have to check that out, not for myself, but for my husband, because I don't cook. (laughs) 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 Luca, would you like to go?
1: Yeah, I have two picks. The first one is the last book that I read. I know that it's not uh, uh, the newest uh, uh, one, but it's pretty cool. And it's called The Phoenix Project. It's a book based on an IT novel. And is explaining how a company with a lot of legacy stuff are moving to the cloud. It's absolutely stunning. Uh, it's like 350 pages of pure IT concepts and uh, how they are moving from iteration of months to iteration of uh, uh, days, if not multiple times per day. And it's absolutely amazing. And I know that in November, there is, uh, from the same author, the new book that is called The Unicorn Project. It is uh, after... Five years, I think, uh, they are moving to, to this thing because obviously at the end of the Phoenix project, there, there are some twists that are leading towards the Unicorn project. Pretty interesting. And the second thing, if you're interested to know more on the technical part of, of uh, uh, Microphone Tense, I have um, a, a webinar on um, uh, O'Reilly uh, web platform that will take place the uh, 30th of September it will be three hours and a half uh, webinar on Microfront Tense, where I'm going through more in detail on uh, what are the different architectures you can apply on Microfront Tense, what are the principles behind them, and how you can start your journey uh, with Microfront Tense.
0: Thank you. All right, Chris, you're up.
5: All right, first, uh, apologies for being a little bit quiet today. I'm moving to Durham, North Carolina in a week, or at least at the time of recording. By the time you hear this, I will be there. Or actually, I will probably not be there because I'll be traveling because September and <laughs> October are crazy. But anyway. Yeah, I've been uh, doing a little bit of multitasking. I apologize for that. My first pick is Voice Attack. When I haven't been working on moving stuff, I've been playing a game called uh, Elite Danger sometimes, which I've talked about on this, this podcast. And Voice Attack is a program that allows you to like, create macros out of voice commands. So for example, I can say, like, attack pattern alpha and, you know, <laughs> <Sorry>. deploy, deploy <laughs> fighters and have them, like, you know, you know do, uh, attack in a certain way. Uh, and, and then I can also say things like engage, which, like, to, oh to, to go into... To, to,
0: sounds you know, my, amazing. <laughs> to star
5: star. Which, like, for anyone who's a, a Trek fan, especially, like, a, a Next Generation fan specifically, like, <laughs> this is kind of a dream. Like I play this in VR, so this, like it adds to the immersion so much to be able to just like give commands, and they have a bunch of different voice packs. I haven't bought any of them yet, I, I'm sure I will with William Shatner, Brent Spiner, you know from, both from Star Trek and some other people too, that can be like the voice of your computer. And it's just it's so fun. I' am currently <laughs> in the trial. I will have to buy it, I think. It's only like 12 bucks, so it, it's not too bad. And you can use it with any game, not just Elite Dangerous.
0: My uh, Twitch stream would have been so much more interesting with that. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead.
5: Yeah, it's, it's cool. I'll have to try that with some other games. My next pick is, again at the time of recording, Taylor Swift's new album, Lover.
4: <laughs> I was going to say that, but then I was like... No.
0: <laughs> but I, uh, listen, I don't know how I feel about you anymore. I think there's anything. <laughs> I, a think um, like
5: but... I used to, think people would I used to think like, oh yeah, Taylor Swift, isn't that for like, you know, teenagers? Don't teenagers listen to that? But I've been a fan since her Red album and then on to like 1989 and Reputation and, and Lover Still. Although Lover's d- different in many ways, but, but still very interesting. And as a sort of side pick... Like last night, Katie and I, after I'd listened through it a couple times uh, just while I was working, my wife Katie and I just like sat down and like listened to the whole thing and just like talked about the songs. And it's so fun, like listening to an album with someone. I think that's something that people don't do as much anymore. I used to do it more when I was younger because like, there wasn't that much to do, but it's still like, it's so fun. And like sharing that musical experience with someone is, is so special and can really like help you help bring you closer together so with a friend or uh, some other loved one i definitely recommend this activity if you'd like to you know find a cool okay. way to bond
4: favorite song
5: chris oh gosh i mean right now mm. cruel summer maybe okay summer is the one that's most stuck in my head
4: mm-hmm.
5: but I there are a that, lot that i like and there the are some that i most like stuck to. on my head and a lot of Archer. the big ones that, that you hear, like if you're thinking like, oh yeah, I've heard some stuff from Taylor Swift's new album and I hated it. Like if you heard like me, she wrote that as a joke. That's a joke song. That's a joke <laughs> song about like the stuff that people expect her to put out. <laughs> That's not meant to be like a real song to be enjoyed.
4: <laughs> Interesting.
5: <laughs> so if you, if you do not like me, that is definitely okay. You are not meant to.
0: Hey, okay. oh, It's going to be a while yeah, before I get over cool. that one, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, Sorry, oh, no
5: judgment. Did you really like me?
0: Uh, no, no. Uh, I'm oh. just, I'm still in shock that that was your pick.
5: Oh, okay. I'm, I'm not saying there's anything <laughs> wrong. I did want to be clear if, for anybody who's listening. If you do like me, like the song,
4: <laughs>
5: I'm not saying there's something wrong with you. <laughs> um, and I think like, you can enjoy songs that are like not that good still. (laughs) That's fine. I enjoy some songs that are not that good too, but it is a bad (laughs) song. (laughs) (laughs) And some of the rhymes, like it's just like, how did she, she has to know what she's doing here. Like, did she come by with me and you with you? This is absurd.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. uh, I guess finally it's time for my picks. So uh, my pick this week is technically a two for one. It's what we do in the shadows, which was both a movie and now a TV series. So the movie you can find on Netflix and the TV series is on Hulu. Now we'll get to the premise. It's basically a mockumentary about vampires and it is so funny. And in the TV series, there is a a scene which has cameos from many, uh, actors who famously played vampires that is so worth all of it <laughs> so i highly recommend what we do in the shadows and that's it for this episode of views on view thank you for joining us and until next week enjoy the view
2: this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit dot com to learn more